Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that as the word is enacted in baptism, read in scripture, and proclaimed in sermon, it is your living word of grace that we hear for our lives. In hearing, we might believe it and embrace it and live it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have an Old and New Testament lesson this morning. First from Ezekiel chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. Follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And hallow my Sabbaths that they might be a sign between me and you, so that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And then from 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. Here's a bit of church history you don't hear very much. In the earliest Christian church, there were many, including disciples of Jesus, who thought that every Christian male ought to be circumcised. Certainly Peter, James, and John were devout in their commitment to follow in the ways of Jesus, but they also thought that meant being devout in the ways of their ancestors. And circumcision had been an unquestioned expression of Jewishness for too many centuries to remember. I bet it is no surprise to you that this expectation of circumcision was not something that Gentile followers of Jesus accepted. Of course, to state the obvious, the physical discomfort was an objection. But so also was the idea that such an important mark of Christian identity would involve only males. Now, the whole debate seems silly to us today, but I'm glad it happened, and so should you be. We ought to be glad that that topic was so controversial because out of the debate over circumcision and other Jewish practices came some of the most beautiful theological affirmations that you can find in the New Testament. Before I explain that, let's first consider why circumcision was such a hot-button topic. We are, I think, right to take the Gentile side in the debate on circumcision, but maybe we are too quick to dismiss the other side. 
When we understand what the Jewish Christians were really afraid of losing, we might realize that while they might have been wrong about circumcision, they were addressing a real concern. So let's try to see where they were coming from. Judaism is the only major religion in world history that survived for centuries without having a single country where they were an ethnic majority, not one country. And with no physical border to set them off as a nation among other nations, with no land to call their own, no king to rule them, no army to defend their right to exist as Jews, what kept them bound together and helped them survive at all and often even thrive were disciplines. Disciplines centered in keeping the Sabbath that reminded them always who they were and what they were called to be as a people of God in the world. Their customs, their distinctive dress, their dietary commands, and yes, even circumcision, all go back to being a distinct and holy people of the Sabbath, a people who set one day a week apart for God-focused worship and rest to empower them to remain people of God when things got complicated at home, at work, and in the community. Now, of course, their ultimate calling was to be a people of the law, a people of justice and mercy, but their persistence and their courage came from weekly and then the daily reminders of who they are based on whose they are. And ever since Abraham, one of those reminders to be a Sabbath people was circumcision. Now, since their survival as a people had been dependent on their sticking together, being there for each other in diet and dress and worship practices, were they suddenly supposed to just let it all go? Not take seriously anymore all the marks and disciplines that helped them raise their children in an identity and gave their children a sense of place? a sense of belonging that shaped who they were. Now, the Jesus event in history had a shocking result. Not only did many Jews see him as the Messiah, there were a flood of Gentiles who found God in him and wanting to devote their lives to knowing and following Jesus and wanting to live ethical and kind lives, mirroring Jesus in their harsh world. These Gentiles came into many Jewish Christian communities. They established many Gentile communities of Jesus' followers. And they could understand the importance of living ethical lives, but it was beyond them to understand why they, as Romans, Greeks, Persians, had to follow rules to look like Jews in order to be Christian. Now, fortunately for the Gentile followers of Jesus, they had an insider on the case. They had a Jewish insider who took up their cause. The Apostle Paul was as Jewish as could be. He knew Jewish scriptures and Jewish cultures inside out. And he understood the fears of Peter, James, and John and the other Jewish leaders. So when he argued for making concessions so Gentiles would feel more comfortable in their midst, he did so as a Jewish insider. His contributions were twofold, political and theological. It doesn't sound very religious, does it, to say that Paul was good at politics, but he was. Just read the chapters in Acts that talk about the negotiations that took place at the Jerusalem Council. Paul could negotiate. Paul knew how to compromise. He would move from the Jewish Christians to the Gentile Christians and say, look, they can put up with you eating shellfish, 
but they really can't stay at the table if you're going to eat meat with blood still in it. And they can move from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians and say, now the Gentiles are going to show their commitment to the larger church and continue to take up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. But you've got to forget about circumcision. He was willing to negotiate non-essentials in order to protect the essential. Spiritual disciplines do matter because they remind us who we are, but can't we compromise on what those disciplines will be? Justice practices matter because God wants us to work for justice and show mercy and be agents of healing and hope in the world, but we do live in a real world, so let's understand that justice looks different in different cultures. Finding a consensus about rules and disciplines matter because it helps keep us cohesive. It helps keep us focused on our purpose. But let's talk and decide together what worship and prayer practices will do together. But though negotiation and compromise were necessary, the debate helped Paul understand and better for us articulate what is the central belief of the whole Christian community that must not get lost among the Jews or Gentiles. Like an irritant in an oyster that leads to a pearl. The irritant of this debate led to the pearl that is the central gospel witness. What it is about Jesus that calls Jew and Gentile alike to know and love God in a fresh and life-transforming way. The defining truth about what it means to be Christian is that we are sinners who fail to love as Jesus loved and live as Jesus lived. We are sinners, but we are saved by the grace of God. Lots of things matter, but this is the truth about the source of our salvation God's unconditional love shown to us in Jesus Christ. And Paul found every way he could to express the primacy of grace. Perhaps Paul's most beautiful expression is the 8th chapter of Romans when he asked, what could possibly separate us from God's love? And after asking that question a number of ways, building and building and building, he finally finishes, reaches the climax by answering the questions, nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate us from God's love that we know in Christ Jesus our Lord. So why isn't that Romans passage our passage for today? Or one of Paul's other arguments for focusing on God's grace. It is because today I want you to hear the testimony not just of the convincer, but of the convinced. There is something powerful about the witness of someone who has had a fundamental transformation of mind and heart, isn't there? I mean, Chuck Colson was able to inspire the world, inspire worldwide ministry for prisoners because he was himself a prisoner and learned to see the world in a different way. F.W. de Klerk was the last president of apartheid South Africa because he was converted as a Christian to the view that apartheid was wrong and had to end. And Peter, the one-time defender of circumcision, came to be the evangelist of baptism as the sign of God's grace that he would defend to the end. Some scholars might interject here offering their opinion that First and Second Peter were not actually written by Peter himself, and they might be right but the letters were written under Peter's name because they were written with his voice. And so I'll refer to their author as Peter. Because here's my main point. 
There have not been enough Bible students and scholars who have given enough credit to Jewish Christian leaders for giving up on some practices that were so critical and important to their identity and embracing baptism as the defining sign of God's central claim on our lives. So let's listen to the convinced Peter speak for the convincer Paul. This is what we believe, Peter begins our passage by saying. And then he doesn't do the normal Jewish thing of telling the story of the Exodus, which is important, but he gives what would be a paraphrase of the Apostles' Creed if the Apostles' Creed were written before. And by the way, some say some version of it had, but that's a different story. Jesus suffered and died, Peter says, and then he as a spirit preached to the spirits of those in prison. We can get ourselves wrapped up in unnecessary knots by wondering what Jesus means by preaching to those in prison. But basically, Peter is saying that Jesus was God's love among us, and that love was abused because of our sin. But God's love reaches even those who deserve nothing but punishment. God's love reaches you and me. That's the gospel. God loves us even in our sin, and God's love delivers us from it. And then Peter goes on to say, and I think this is beautiful, that God's love then is an ark for us. As the ark carried Noah and the animals through the flood, and as an ark of the covenant carried the Ten Commandments and guided the people in the wilderness, God's forgiving and reconciling love is an ark in which we are carried. And what is the sign of that unconditional love of God? Peter, who once was in the party who defended circumcision, says it is baptism. Baptism is the perfect sign of God's grace because it doesn't take long for the water to dry and not be seen, even if the baptized had been dumped. Touch Charlotte's head right now. It is dry, but be warned, she'll touch your head back. <laughs> baptism is a physical expression of God's grace because it disappears on the outside. It is an outward sign of an invisible grace. But here is the thing that Peter wants to make clear and those in the Gentile camp need to embrace. What the Jewish Christians were most afraid of losing was not really the practice of circumcision. Rather, they were afraid of losing the practice of keeping disciplines as a way of life Disciplines that bind a people together and actually make them effective witnesses to God's grace in the world because they're reminded of the support of God and they experience the support of each other. To put it another way, baptism says everything about identity, but it is primarily God's identity, not the one baptized. Consider the baby who is baptized but never brought to church again. God's grace is what is proclaimed. Consider the adult who gets baptized just because that adult wants to make another member of the family happy and then never comes to church. God's grace is still proclaimed. Consider the one baptized who ends up committing terrible crimes. God's grace is still proclaimed. Consider the one who is baptized and then leaves the faith. Still, as always, God's grace is proclaimed. What really marks Christian identity for the baptized is not so much the one and done event of baptism, but the living of its truth. It is the keeping of the Sabbath and all the practices that come from it that help shape and mold a Christian identity. 
the specific practices, how one worships, how one prays, how one finds ways to be generous and kind, that can change from person to person. But the practices themselves, when they are serious and when they are sustained, remind us who we are based on whose we are and reminds us of the moral lives that we are to lead. Our Trent Getaway speaker, Matt Gaventa, made that point at the retreat. Like most of us, he was baptized as a baby. He was glad he was because, like me, the grace of God that baptism proclaims is the central truth of what he believes. But what has really shaped his identity is that his parents and his church community kept showing up and keeping the promises they made at his baptism. He remembers his parents bringing him to church Sunday after Sunday, saying prayers over meals during the week and at bedtime, and expecting him to think about what Jesus would have him do and become in his daily life. His Sunday school teachers, his youth advisors, they kept showing up. Some of his friendships grew deeper in that he and friends began exploring together what it means to live lives where God loves them and calls them. He knows who he is as a Christian, not simply because he's baptized, but because a whole community of people taught him and showed him what living one's baptismal identity can mean. It was kind of funny, at least I thought so. But during a break, I so strongly agreed with Matt what he had said that he almost regretted saying it. (laughs) He thought that maybe he had come across as saying that baptism isn't important. I assured him he had nothing to worry about. I have always believed that baptism is the most beautiful expression of the sheer grace of God that the church can come up with. But I also strongly believe that what is at the core of Sabbath keeping, showing up over and over again on Sundays for worship and rest, but more than that, then showing up every day of the week, that's where we grow into the image of God. It's not what saves us. It is what shapes us. If Jewish Christians were so right in giving up circumcision as a sign of Christian identity, Gentile Christians were just as right in taking on Sabbath-keeping as a core expression of what it means to follow Jesus. We love God and honor God through worship and rest, just as at the very beginning, and it's a gift. Because there we find our energy and our direction in living that way every day of our lives. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.